Welcome back. I'm Alfred Lambert Weber, and today we have an extraordinary guest coming to us from Berkeley, California, independent scientist, Loren Murray. Welcome, Loren. Thank you, Alfred. I'm really very happy to be on your program today, and thank you so much for inviting me. It's um, such um, a pleasure to do these interviews with you. Thank you. Excellent. Well, uh, today we, we have a program whose thematic headline is Putin in Syria, restoring sovereignty of nations through international law and shifting the balance of world power to peaceful economies. And I know that you've prepared, uh, a program that goes into the strategic and all of the tactical as well as uh all of the uh i would say uh programmatic and um visionary uh as well as uh moral force that Putin and the new Russia has developed uh to carry all of this out uh so perhaps you can start uh, just taking us on this journey? Well, um, the the latest really big conflict has been in the Ukraine for the last year, and, uh, well, almost a year and a half now. And then, of course, that was um, coincidental or initiated by the um, MH370 uh, shoot down of the Malaysian Airlines plane over the South China Sea. And that was just when the government of the Ukraine had been hijacked by the CIA. And, uh, and then that was in March. I believe it was March 8th, 2014. And then, um, the, the, um, a part of, uh, this is after Crimea, held a referendum and, and declared their independence from the Ukraine and became part of Russia. And so the um, the eastern uh, uh, Ukrainians in the region of Novorussia, Novorussia is an old term going back to Catherine the Great for uh, that southern part of the Ukraine that goes extends all the way into uh, Russia to the east and into in the west it goes into um, Moldova Moldovia Moldavia I think and um, that was a term used for that region which was part of Russia then and so when um, I'm not sure if Putin gave these the Donbass and Luhansk oblasts uh, the term never was but it did come out of the Kremlin in Moscow. And, um, and so this was a vision a year and a half ago, uh, the, the, uh, Nova Russians. In other words, uh, most of them, many of them are Cossacks. And they were Catherine the Great's Cossacks. And the Potemkin villages were built in the region where they live now. And they own it in perpetuity. They were granted that land, those two oblasts by Catherine the Great, for their service in the 100 Years' War in the Caucasus and another shorter war. 
and they perform perform so greatly, so so well for her that she granted this land to them forever. And um, it's a beautiful, rich, uh, black soil land and grasslands. They they love horses. These are the original um, uh, nomadic equestrian warriors from uh, prehistoric time that um, are still around and and still very very good uh, military fighters and warriors. So. Um, that region immediately, um, some of the Cossacks pick, picked up old Kalashnikovs and they started to um, um, form an army, a rebel army and uh, or a separatist army and fight the Ukrainian army, which was sent in by uh, the, um, the um, president of the Ukraine who was put in by CIA in March of uh, no in June he was he was installed in June of 2014 but he was elected or installed in in March and um, so uh, that conflict went on over the past year and a half and then um, it sort of uh, got slowed down on purpose uh, because it was getting to be too messy. Monsanto's involved. They want all of the Ukraine for the black soil, and uh, they and the Ukraine actually has been feeding Europe and Russia. So it's a tremendous agricultural center, and it was also the richest um, sort of uh, nation um, or federation in the uh, Soviet Union, and they've always been very intellectual and, and bright. And it's actually where the Russians came from. And um, so that that conflict uh, kind of got put on a side burner, and um, there were some assassinations of of uh, Cossack leaders to stop it. And um, that was on the that came out of the Kremlin uh, because there were other things cooking, like the the, the underbelly of Russia, which uh, was being invaded by ISIS over the last year and even before that, and Russia was much more vulnerable there. So instead of focusing on the Ukraine and that whole region, Russia's doorstep from the uh, Baltic states down to the Balkan states, um, uh, he decided to um, go into Syria first. And the plans are to take care of Syria and to... um, to restore the um, either the present president Assad, the people really love him and loved his father too. He and his wife are very dedicated to the people, and he's a very very good president. And he stood by them and stayed with them all through four and a half years of ISIS tearing his country to shreds. Um, and uh, so, I guess that it was finally. Um, apparent to the Russians, to the Kremlin, that they had to do something or Russia was going to be taken down by NATO, by the U.S., by Gladio, and then the unfortunate things that um, happened uh, because of the Ukraine or through the Ukraine, um, 
Europe sure sure did go through some very bad transitions. And um, so I think that Russia, for a number of reasons, chose to um, go to Syria at the request of the president. So Russia is legally there according to UN laws and, and international treaties and so forth. They were asked and invited to go there. And um, so Russia put everything together. Uh, Putin went to the UN at the end of September and made his very fine speech. And um, he said, do you know what you're doing? And he was talking to the Americans about how they've destroyed all these countries, not just in, in Africa, but all over the world. And uh, so he really basically drew a line in the sand, and the very next day they started bombing in Syria. And the Russians are there to do carry out an air campaign, and surprisingly they have many allies who have come in with their soldiers and equipment to assist the Russians and to support the um the Syrians regaining their own lost ground that's been occupied by not just ISIS, but ISIL and IS and all of these little groups that were funded by the Anglo-American uh, Permanent War Crimes Racketeering Syndicate. And what is underlying all of this in Syria, this conflict for the last four and a half years, is that uh, these interests who are big oil and gas Hogs. They want to own all the companies and control the energy companies globally and everything. And this is Anglo-Americans. Um, they wanted to overthrow Assad uh, because they wanted um, the they wanted access to Syria for pipelines and so forth. And um, that was the whole motive uh, for all this this horrible. A war going on that was completely illegal in Syria and Assad's army held them off for four and a half years they must be exhausted by now and Assad himself I don't know how he kept his spirit so strong that long watching you know his 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 uh, citizens dying and and just village after village and town after town being destroyed but uh, somehow um uh, I think Russia had to wait until all of the conditions were right. And then Assad invited him to come in and uh, with his military. And uh, so Putin built two more bases or refurbished them or whatever. Uh, they also have a permanent port, military port, for their navy in uh, uh, Syria. And uh, recently the e Egypt uh, gave them five miles of coastline in the Suez Canal at the entrance to the Mediterranean. So now uh, Russia has two ports in the Mediterranean, very, very strategic ones in terms of oil and gas transit. This is the energy uh, shipping to especially Asia. So, um, so what happened is the whole world was holding their breath when this bombing started in Syria. And Hezbollah came to volunteer from Lebanon. And Iran came to fight with them because the, nah, the nuclear agreement had been made um, 
against the wishes of Israel and, and I think Turkey. Um, and uh, so they were free to fight in Syria. And uh, they sent some of their best generals and soldiers, and they're very well trained also. And then the Kurds came and volunteered to join the Syrian army and, and assist and support them. And they are, they've been fighting in Turkey and in Iraq. And the Iraqis came to uh, Syria to also fight with Russia and the other allies. Now, um, they started bombing ISIS. Well, what they did was they divided Syria into uh, pieces for each particular uh, group to, um, to militarily handle. And Russia took the ISIS areas. Iran uh, took the border, I believe, with the Golan Heights in Israel. Now, that did belong to Syria. That's Syrian. The Golan Heights belonged to Syria. But they were grabbed in the 1963 or 64 war. And um, this, is, uh, this has gotten to be uh, just every single day. Uh, Russia is amping up the, the ante on, in, in militarily. And the U.S. is just in complete chaos, not just the military, but the administration. They really don't know what to do. Um, and then, of course, don't ever, ever play chess with a Russian. And that is the worst mistake that the U.S. made. Uh, they tried to play chess with the Russian, and they are losing. And they were playing checkers or old maid without the full deck or whatever. But they've got a big handicap because you cannot win a chess game against a Russian the way the Americans play. So, um, surprisingly, um, the media, of course, the international media didn't want to cover it and didn't want to give Putin and the, um, the Russian... Uh, military and their allies credit or even news coverage for what they were doing. And, um, yeah, who owns the media? We know, we know about that. And then, um, they were just wiping out, um, headquarters, underground bunkers, the headquarters and the leaders of ISIS and the other groups. And then they were wiping out all their trucks and their big, big equipment and tanks and, uh, then they were bombing all their um, munitions and their fuel depots and their ammunition depots. And in uh, two less than two weeks, they'd taken out 60% of the ISIS facilities infrastructure. And then uh, the in the other areas where other allies were fighting with the Syrian army, they were the allies were doing air cover and they were also on the ground. And they began regaining uh, territory and cities and villages that ISIS and the, these other uh, jihad groups had been occupying. Uh, the great tragedy, of course, is it's not just the villages they've destroyed and the orchards and the um, people's lives, but they have deliberately destroyed some of the most beautiful antiquities like Palmyra in Syria, and um, it's just what the U.S. did 
in Iraq with the ancient Mesopotamian and Sumerian um, history. And I, I just see this happening in country after country. They're, they're, they're destroying the U.S. and its allies are destroying the history of these countries, the ancient history. And there's a reason for that. Um, another thing is that all these wars, not just this war in Syria and other Middle Eastern wars, but the, the attack on NATO, the NATO attack on Yugoslavia, even the, uh, the you, what's going on in the Ukraine, these are actually religious wars, and they are to destroy any religions, especially Christianity is what they're targeting, that refuse to submit to the Pope in Rome. And the Eastern Orthodox Church in Russia, uh, in Serbia, uh, in, in some of the other countries, in Syria, in some of these uh, Middle Eastern areas, there are a lot of Christians. They refuse to submit to the Pope of Rome. And uh, for that reason, that is one of the main reasons Yugoslavia was attacked by NATO. It was to kill off the uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians in Serbia and, and other parts of Yugoslavia. And um, so this, um, this war in, in, in um, Syria has been a huge turning point for the whole world and what happened after about two weeks especially after the uh, attack on ISIS by Russia from their Corvette uh, new brand new ships that were built just for the Caspian they're smaller than destroyers and, and other navy ships you would use on oceans but they're just the right size and they have new rockets that, that go very very far and on top of that uh, Putin had a treaty made uh, with the countries that have uh, shorelines on the Caspian Sea. And the treaty was a year or two ago. And they agreed that no military from any other country that does not have land around the Caspian Sea can enter that region. So um, they've blocked... Uh, NATO, U.S., Gladio, and other foreign uh, militaries uh, from ever being able to go there legally. So what happened is um, sort of late at night, one night, uh, maybe a, uh, a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago maybe, all of a sudden there were uh, 28 missiles launched from these corvettes sitting in the Caspian Sea. And they, they, they struck almost all, almost all of them struck, uh, the intended sites. They're very, very pinpoint accurate if they want them to be very strategic. And, uh, um, and they're very, very careful about what they're targeting. They don't want to hurt any civilians or infrastructure. So, uh, Russia's been very, very clinically, surgically strategic about it. And um, they've done a magnificent job. And I just don't know how a $500 billion army uh, doesn't know what to do to a $50 billion army. Uh, but uh, it's um, money isn't all of it. It's, it's, the, um, it's the history of war that, that a culture knows that really 
does determine uh, a lot of times the outcome. And I know that Saddam Hussein was never expected by the CIA to win the Iraq-Iran War, which the Anglo-American terrorists uh, funded both sides. And um, they were really shocked when Iran lost and uh, Iraq won. And it was Saddam Hussein using Mesopotamian warfare, thousands of years old, in the um, in that marshland in the southern part of Iraq, where the Tigris and Euphrates flow into the Arabian Gulf. So, um, it's a very, very exciting time. Um, the Hezbollah now has their first two tank brigades. They've never had tank brigades. Um, it's a time of pride, and it's a time of winning fairly, and it's a time of excellent battlefield practices and strategy, and it's a time of being very, very prepared. And most of all, the spirituality behind it that is guiding it, that uh, everything be according to international law, to be morally correct, to not harm the the civilians, uh, to restore the the president elected uh, fairly and righteously by the citizens. Um, this is all uh, huge, tremendous energy. Spiritual spiritual energy is is one of the most powerful forces on the planet, and um, and here we see it operating and winning and uh, and bringing more people. More and more countries now are coming to Putin and asking for help. The Saudi Arabians sent a delegation of about 20 people in the royal family to Moscow a week ago and asked Putin if he would help them. They funded ISIS in the beginning, and they're probably funding them now, but they did it to get them out of their own country. They were a threat there, so they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll fund you, but you go three countries over there and stay over there. And that's how they uh, lured them out of Saudi Arabia, but they're coming back now. And the Kurds, in uh, the Turkish Kurds and the Iraqi Kurds, have come to Putin and asked him to help them. Um, Erdogan has been bombing them and um, and destroying their villages and, and everything. And by the way, the Kurds and the Basques and the Berbers in North Africa are all Iranian bloodline tribes. And there are many, many small tribes in Syria who are Iranian. And all of the people of the Saudi Arabian Peninsula are actually Iranian bloodline tribes. And I discovered this when I was watching a video made by Saudi Arabians showing what Saudi Arabian people look like. And I went, oh my God, they're Iranian, <laughs> which is Persian, more or less. And um, uh, so I think we should call Saudi Arabia the Saudi Iranian uh, Peninsula from now on, because that's really what it is. And so now um, it's going to take about three or four months more to uh, for the Russians and their allies to really clean out uh, Syria and restore it to a peaceful state and stabilize the government and... Um, 
and uh, then the people will determine who they want for president. I imagine that Assad will be the choice because he has been a very, very good, very good president, excellent, and, and his father also, and his wife. She's done tremendous things to help the people. So what is Putin going to do next? Um, the greatest danger to Russia today is that underbelly where the old um, um, oil-rich states, sovereign states, uh, that were part of the Soviet Union and got their independence afterwards, um, they have uh, ISIS problems now uh, from Azerbaijan, not just Syria but you, and the Middle East, but um, Azerbaijan all across Central Asia uh, to uh, Xinjiang, which is in China, and that's where the Uyghurs or the Chinese Islamic tribes live. They're very, very interesting. And the U.S. has pumped money and guns and all kinds of things um, to the Uyghurs, so the Chinese definitely do not want um, um, the uh, the ISIS and all this, all the, these troublemakers, these rebels. Uh, well, they're paid mercenaries basically to um, invade the uh, the Uyghur regions of China and destabilize that area. So what Putin is doing, his allies now also China is in uh, Syria fighting with the Russians and the other allies. They brought a uh, an aircraft carrier to the uh, port in Syria, and now Russia, their only aircraft carrier has been repaired and refurbished, and it's on the way to Syria also. And when the bombing started to stop supplies and munitions from coming into Syria, Russia put a complete um, Navy blockade across the entire shoreline of that country. And uh, so the U.S. has been airdropping tow missiles and a lot of um, uh, military toys and ammunition that uh, shouldn't be uh, available or or handed off to the, the rebels when the U.S. is supposed to be there as an ally of the United States, of an ally of uh, Russia and these other uh, states that are there helping. But um, finally, the the Russians kind of set them up, the U.S., and then um, and then exposed that they they had been bombing the civilian infrastructure in Aleppo for five days. So uh, I think that's going to be grounds at the U.N. Security Council for uh, Russia to ask uh, the U.N. to order the uh, U.S. and its allies out of Syria. And uh, they're, they're running off to the early ones. The, um, these are young men. They're 18 to 23 years old. And they just want jobs. So they picked up guns and, and you know, started working for the U.S. covertly. And uh, so when the bombing started and it was so strategic and, and uh, very, very accurate, uh, the, the less strong, the weaker, the weaker groups, panicked and went running off to uh, Europe to get welfare. 
and um, and then it, it got started getting tougher because every day Russia is using bigger weapons, more strategic bombing and missiling. They brought in their helicopters. You should see them. Oh my God! On the battlefield, they come in and. Um, they're firing phosphorus out of each side of the helicopter, and it's hotter than the helicopter. So any missiles that are launched from the ground by the enemy uh, go after the hot phosphorus blobs flying through the air, and uh, they don't hit the helicopter. And then um, they, they come in real low to the ground, and they just start uh, strafing and machine gunning and whole areas. It's just amazing to watch. I've never seen helicopter wars like that or helicopters used like that, but the Russians are very, very good at it. And um, and then they did the missiles from the Caspian, and now they're, I believe, we've been seeing in the news for maybe the last few days that hints that the Russian soldiers are on the ground now in Syria, even though Putin uh, a couple weeks ago said we are here to do an air, air campaign only. But um, I think they're they're going to do whatever they need to do to, um, to quickly take care of the situation and move on to uh, eat towards the east where they have to clear out that hole, clean out all of the... Um, the rebels and the ISIS and everything that are in Afghanistan and Azerbaijan and uh, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, and they're on their way to uh, the Uyghur areas in Xinjiang in China. So um, that's pretty much what's happening. And then, of course, when that's cleaned out, uh, Putin will have to go back to uh, Russia's doorstep, which is the Baltic states to the Balkan states, and deal with that, and I am certain he's not through with the Ukraine. I think he's going to go in and take care of that situation too, because he can't leave that NATO and the U.S. and Gladio sitting there uh, on the other side of the um, the border. Right, right. Now, um, uh, you had you had mentioned that that. As, as a result of the shift, uh, we're today on, uh, Sunday, October 18th. And if we look back, the, the, uh, UN, uh, General Assembly meeting was just, uh, about, about a month ago. Uh, you know, uh, on, it, it was actually started on the week of September 23rd to, to 26th. Uh, right, so it was only three weeks ago. Yeah, I think that. And they've and they've destroyed eighty percent of the ISIS infrastructure. Yeah, and, and that now, so we 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 had uh, the the Jesuit Pope speak in the UN. I think that was on uh, sep- September twenty fifth or or twenty sixth, and um, uh, Putin, I think, spoke uh, either the next day or right around then. And then, uh, the, the, um, attacks against ISIS, uh, which really should read attacks against the, uh, illegal occupying forces of the, of Israel, the U S and, and the UK in that region. Uh, occurred 
And now we have, I think you, you, you mentioned rising support in the Middle East for Putin and Russia to free them as hostages, as U.S. hostages. That, that is countries yes. who are under the petrodollar uh, scam. Uh, uh, and just in these three weeks, the U.S., it seems, has lost its global dominance, its credibility, and now uh, uh, really has fallen back to begin to cannibalize its own citizens. Could you talk about how this really happened in only three weeks? Well, um, the Russians planned it for at least three years, and uh, they even built the weapon systems very, very carefully, very strategically, actually very, um, they're just very pragmatic and, and realistic. So uh, what happens when they, they build a weapon system in Russia is they'll, they'll call for uh, designs from different companies or corporations, and they'll look at them. And uh, then they put their committees together, and they decide exactly what they want, and uh, then they build it. They build one, and that's it. That's the one they use. In the U.S., they call for all kinds of designs. They come in, and uh, they build a whole bunch of them and test them and everything, and spend a whole lot of money and pump a lot of money into the private sector that way. But... um uh, we've, uh, we've got a real problem in America because our weapon systems are being designed by committees in Congress. And the, the money appropriations and, um, uh, committees that have members from different states that manufacture different things that are components of those weapons, um, have, they compete on the same committee for uh, contracts and stuff. And uh, so the, 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 uh, the, the reasons and the end, end point and everything of weapons design in the U.S. is to pump money into the private sector instead of to make a good weapon. And the F-35 is just a gigantic boondoggle. Some senator probably wanted it. And... Um, it still doesn't fly right. It's extremely expensive to um, to service it and to keep it in the air. And uh, it's really not even well designed, and yet billions of dollars have been poured into it. We've sold it to other countries, and they quit buying them because they were too expensive to maintain. And um, so that's not a practical, pragmatic, uh, efficient weapon system that was designed. It was something that benefited politicians in their own states by giving their corporations a piece of the pie in the manufacturing of those weapons. So how can you have a weapon made in uh, 10 or 12 or 14 different states, parts of it, and then put it together and and, and have it be um, a really well-integrated design? Um, it's um, It's very crazy, but uh, but it doesn't work. And we've spent huge amounts of money, 70% at least of American children live below the poverty line. How can that be in a country that boasts it's the wealthiest nation in the world? Well, I helped a Japanese woman, uh, Mika um, Tsutsumi, 
write two books that uh, were called America Poverty Superpower, Part 1 and Part 2. And they were Book of the Year two years in a row in Japan. And those kinds of books have never been popular in Japan. But the Japanese uh, went wild over them because they were only four chapters. And one of them that I helped her write was on um, health care in the U.S., student school loans, prisons, and um, I forgot what the fourth one was, but uh, they were, oh, the, um, the, um, the mortgage crisis. And the Japanese went wild over them because they know that two years after something like that happens over here, that happens in Japan. And um, so um, that that was really very interesting to um, to look at my own country um, for the first time in terms of uh, helping someone present it to the Japanese in another language and in a very different culture. So anyway, uh, I forgot what I, I got off the topic now. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we were... We were talking about how it's just been three weeks uh, mm. since mm-hmm. Putin gave his yes. speech and then immediately starting bombing ISIS and 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 which is what the U.S. had said it was doing and yes. calling the U.S.'s bluff and right. and uh, uh, and in those three weeks. Uh, uh, ISIS largely has been destroyed. I've, I've read that, uh, they're now shaving their beards and fleeing Syria. That's the latest yeah. update today. Uh, and, and, uh, that, uh, and, and so, uh, how is it that, that, that this shift, this global shift of power and dominance has happened so quickly, i.e. in three weeks? Well, um, I would say that, uh, well, most Americans don't know that we're a permanent war economy and we've been involved in a foreign war every single day of every year since 1776 when we became a country. Uh, there's a, a good book called Overthrow. I've forgotten the author's name, but um, he wrote the whole history of the last 100 years, all the overthrows that the U.S. has done, starting with Hawaii. And um, it's very clear that war, wars and overthrows and cannibalizing other countries are what America's about. Um, and I, I just, I'm, I'm irate when Hillary Clinton and, and, um, the Bushes and and all these people are Obama and are all running around the world talking about democracy. We're bringing democracy to your country. Well, look at the Ukraine. They now have. They were the richest, uh, the richest state or republic in the Soviet Union, and they now have uh, salaries that are lower than Ghana which is, I believe, one of the lowest salaries in per capita income in the world. How could that be? In one year. That's incredible. And that's the power of the United States. That's the efficiency of the United States. 
They violate all laws. They violate all treaties. They violate all agreements and um, all war, uh, war, war. Let's see, war conventions. And they don't even blink. They just laugh. Uh, I mean, they're so. I meet. I meet them all all over the world. I I meet them around Berkeley. Um, they're so um, immoral. They're they're satanic. And in fact, I think you are right. Um, it's mostly all run on artificial intelligence, because these are not normal people with normal. Um, feelings and and um uh their their that executive part of their brain that controls impulse control is not working anymore they just do what what uh they're programmed to do without thinking they're soulless and there's no spirit in them the spirit is dead they're really just robots they're reduced to being robots exactly you know it's funny um uh, just about a week or so before the UN, uh, um, meeting this year, uh, Press TV called me and, uh, uh, and they started asking me about, about ISIS and they said, well, isn't, isn't the U.S. uh, bombing ISIS? I mean, isn't ISIS this great thing? So I took that as an opportunity to just, you know, expose ISIS on at that point as really a front for uh, for uh, the U.S. and the U.K. and Israel, which was uh, financing ISIS. And uh, and then they asked me. They said, "Well, isn't Obama bombing? Isn't the U.S. bombing ISIS?" And I said, "No." Those bombing raids are frauds. They they advise ISIS where the supposed bombing raids are going to be so that they're out of the way. And right. and just a week later, Putin had that in, had that intelligence, which must have been common knowledge, and acted on it. Yes. So right. uh, so the whole U.S. and the whole of Obama have been uh, a political, a moral, and a military fraud. And that really accounts for how the balance of power has shifted so quickly in three weeks because the fraud mm-hmm. was called. The, but the, it's, the mo- it's the momentum behind it that was set up before that uh, that gave Putin the ability, the opportunity to flip it. Uh, well, really, to just step in and change um, the whole direction. I mean, he's a he's a martial arts expert, and what he did was he just went in and he changed the direction of the energy and the power. But he did it in such a an elegant and a smooth and an efficient way um, that it's not really a war just to have a war to make money for politicians and weapons politicians and weapons manufacturers uh like the US wars are to make more millionaires and billionaires but it's a war to transform a country and then a region and then a continent and then the whole world because real change turns on one person
Right, right. Now, and what is and what has happened is that uh, because the U.S. has practiced such gangster and voodoo economics that uh, the petrodollar was just a scam to make everybody use dollars, and and so they had to convert their currency into dollars, and then uh, the U.S. made money on all these transactions and for doing nothing, and so. Um, then the U.S. started blackmailing countries and assassinating uh, leaders and uh, doing horrible things, extorting money and extorting uh, uh, compliance using blackmail and, and other methods. And um, so countries and, and nation states and leaders were doing things they didn't even want to do that the U.S. roped them into. And... Um, so everybody's been uh, subjected to racketeering and extortion and, and all kinds of horrible things for decades and decades and decades since World War II ended, basically. And, um, and as the U.S. has gotten away with it, they've gotten bolder and their damage is greater and they're killing more people and, um, and they're going faster and faster. So it's like a... A cancer growth that's totally, uh, there's no growth control at all. It's just spreading all over, uh, the whole organism, every organ and every part of it and every lymph node and the blood cells and, and the glands and everything. And so someone had to stop it. Someone had to stop it. And, um, the, the Russians were destroyed by America, uh, because we funded the Bolshevik Revolution which destroyed Russia, killed 100 million people uh, between World War One and World War Two, And it was funded by um, uh, Jacob Schiff at Kuhn Loeb, the, the robber baron uh, financial house. And um, he funded the Bolshevik Revolution. And there were something like two-thirds, 70 or 80 percent of the Bolshevik leaders were all uh, basement Jews from Brooklyn who changed their names, many of them, to Russian names and went over and staged the Bolshevik Revolution and destroyed the country. And um, so that's what the U.S. is doing and they're going into countries. Uh, they're training the students and seducing the students from foreign countries and programming them to carry out color revolutions. And so... Cheney hired in the Cold War Victoria Newland, who um, carried out the Orange Revolution in the Ukraine, and it resulted in the CIA over a CIA coup overthrowing the legitimately uh, elected president Yanukovych, and um, so. Uh, this is what our business is, and we've done it in Kyrgyzstan and, and uh, Turkey and um, uh, Egypt, all these countries, all the, the Tulip Revolution, the, all, all over in all these countries. And they don't even know how, how it happens. It happens so fast. It, it's students in the streets protesting and everything. Um, so uh, now Putin has gone... Uh, to many countries in his sphere of influence and warn them about the color revolutions and the students and everything and um, how they're 
they're pick, being trained at U.S. universities, especially the University of California and especially Berkeley. And so now the U.S. is training in a new way, and these uh, revolutions are going to be by bringing foreign students to the United States, to UC Berkeley, UC Davis, uh, UC LA, uh, all over uh, the University of California, and they train them in how to be guided missiles or saboteurs or uh, overthrowers of their own governments when they go back. And they're taught how to compute, uh, how to, to hack into computers. They're taught how to use directed energy weapons and to uh, use antennas. Uh, they're all around my house, and they've used all these weapons on me from every direction. And they're using them on other other neighbors and other students as well. And um, so I've lived through it. I know what they're doing. I know how they're trained. I know who's training them. Uh, Homeland Security is involved. The FBI is involved. Um, the uh, intelligence agencies from other countries, they're all over Berkeley, so they're involved. And um, Berkeley has brought in, well, all these new street lamps and um, the, the G5 cell phones, the smart meters, these are all integrated and part of this whole sabotage system. And these foreign students, uh, they have smart meters at home in their own countries, most of them, and they have cell phones and these antennas. So they're being trained to go back and overthrow all their countries, infiltrate them over the next 30 years. And on their tail goes Monsanto, Nestle, all these big corporations that um, are just drooling to get into weaker countries, third world countries, and help them develop, right? Right, right. And, and so you actually go and you've done some analysis, starting with how heart uh, was used in mining minerals and then going out to show how the new Silk Road economy is developing and, and how that's part of what Putin's strategy is about. And so could you unfold some of that now? Well, sure. And what Putin has done, uh, he's seen all these color revolutions and, and um, these students being brainwashed. Uh, he doesn't want that in his country, and he's gone to all the leaders um, that he knows and he has influence with, and he's warned them about all of this, and he also told them to get the NGOs out of their countries, to investigate them and get them out. And Russia had less than a 100 non-governmental organizations. These are activist groups, and um, they're funded by the New World Order or the UN or... Uh, corporations or whatever intel agencies and they um, they come into a country infiltrated and then they overthrow it and uh, he's he kicked out like 85 out of less than a hundred um, he discovered were foreign foreign funded they were Russian some of them were Russian but they were getting their funding from foreign foreign countries 
And um, so he cleaned house in Russia, and then he went to the president of Kyrgyzstan and, and other areas of Russia or on the border of Russia and warned them. So they got rid of these NGOs, and I was just flabbergasted when I was reading about his good friend, the president of Kyrgyzstan. He had, um, like, uh, 600 and 50 NGOs, some ridiculous number in this very small country. And there must be some good stuff there because that they want to steal because that's an awful lot of NGOs. And uh, Putin went to him and said, get rid of them. They're going to overthrow your country. So I think he's in the process. Uh, the president of Kyrgyzstan is in the process of cleaning house now. But um, it's... Uh, it's a it's a very dangerous world out there, especially for young people, and uh, they're entrained with artificial intelligence. It's in the G5 phones. The flat array antennas now are getting smaller and smaller. These were designed by the Navy for ships, and now they're little ones the size of a dime, and instead of having one in a cell phone, there might be 10 or 15. And these are aligned in a way that it's a network that transmits much more powerfully than um, than just uh, having a, a one bigger uh, panel there on the cell phone. And the if you walk around apartment buildings, you can see walls covered with 10 or 20 or 30 smartphones. Well, those aren't just electricity going to different apartments. They're actually geometrically configured on the wall to be a much more powerful antenna uh, as a group or as a network than if you just added up what each one was transmitting. It's more, one plus one is more than two when it's in a network like that. So, um, there are all these changes that are happening and um Putin uh, cleaned out his own house. He has good advisors. He has very good scientists working for him. He has good intel people. Uh, General Ivanov is one of them. Um, and and he's a very smart man, and he makes all his own decisions. He listens to all his advisors. He keeps the oligarchs happy. He gives them something to keep them happy. Uh, but he never gives them everything they want. So they keep coming back, but but they're not completely satisfied, but that's what keeps keeps them coming back. And so he he balances things and he said he spends over eighty percent of his time on working on issues about the infrastructure of Russia, the wars and the diplom diplo- diplomatic issues and everything are less than 20% of his time. So he is very dedicated and he is very concerned to investing in the infrastructure of Russia. That's what he's most interested in. And this is with a foreign um, a foreign um, uh, money coming in with international agreements and and um, um, um exchanges of goods and and import and export balances and I think he's done a really a very good job he's restored Russia uh, to 
something much better than uh, what it was left as after the Bolshevik Revolution, or maybe even before it. But it was a lot more innocent before the the Bolshevik Revolution. So um, I think uh, I have a great regard for him and for uh, the people who support and advise him. I have tremendous uh, good feelings and admiration for the Russian people for persevering the long hardships, a lot of it caused by the United States. I want to apologize to the Russian people for that. And um, the loss of lives and all kinds of terrible things happened because of World War Two and World War One, and um, now we see uh, this all NATO causing trouble all around Russia. Uh, but I think it's going to uh, be cleaned up, and I think there will be uh, law and order restored, and I think most people around the world will support that and be relieved because it's been feeling very unsafe for, I think, the global um, a community and, and population. Right, right. And in that vain we talk about peaceful economies could you begin yes. to tell us what this new silk road economy is the the beijing yes. moscow berlin i i saw a proposal actually the other day uh uh from a, a, a planner in in russia of of a highway that went from st petersburg russia to new york which i said and it went over the land bridge. And I said, wow, that's really interesting. So there's a lot of visionary stuff happening there. I mean, none of the vision is coming out of the U.S., only war and destruction. And I thought that that was one of the most practical things that I'd seen in a long time. So, well, so, mm -hmm. yeah. The, the Russians are very pragmatic. They're very practical. They're, um, they're very clever. Oh, there are a lot of things. They're very, very interesting. And Russia is not a people. It's a rainbow of peoples. There are so many different kinds of people in, in Eurasia, uh, in Russia. It's such a vast, uh, huge land with such a long, deep history. In fact, all of Eurasia was populated by people from Central Asia. And... Uh, that's very surprising, but I've been doing a lot of studies uh, that are being published recently in the last two years especially, DNA studies of uh, the Eurasian continent. And so that's who are these people and how are they related from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from from Europe to China, the, the, the shoreline of China. And uh, it's really exciting because you can't understand the history or even modern history or even what's happening now unless you know the deeper history of a region or a country or, or a culture. And that's when it gets to be really fun because all of a sudden when you're looking at the deep history, you have clues and things that explain things today. Confucius, thousands of years ago after all, he said, well... Um, um, oh God. He said, signs and symbols rule the world, not 
laws, and words. And when I started looking at signs and symbols, instead of reading in books and that other people had written or whatever, and a lot of times uh, revisionist history, that's, that's horrible. And I started following the signs and symbols, and I've traveled a lot, and I have multiple degrees in different disciplines, including the ancient history of the Middle East and Central Asia. And uh, so what a background I have accidentally to understand the history today and this revival of the Silk Road economy. This is nothing new. This was old, old, old. And the reason they are creating the Silk Road economy is because it was an economy that created tremendous wealth. And that wealth brought the Iranians into the Mediterranean. They were the finest silk makers, and they traded uh, silk all over the Eurasian continent. They ended up coming through Turkey, and this is the Farnese family, a Parthian-Iranian family. When the Parthian Empire collapsed, they moved into eastern Turkey, into Cappadocia, and then later on, they moved into Italy, and this is with uh, whole communities of them. And the Farnese family is the ducal family of Fidel Castro. Right. His family, his direct bloodline, were the Dukes of Castro. And the um, they are also they also hold the title um, the the larger family, the Dukes of Piacenza and the Dukes of Parma. And it was uh, Alessandro Farnese who uh, became Pope Paul III after he came out of the um, the beautiful Piedmont area, the northern area of Italy. And he, of course, the, the uh, Italians are Iranians. Look at their black hair and their white skin and, and their... Um, Oh, very tribal behavior they have. They're not like Europeans. I always knew that when I went to Italy, but I didn't know they were Iranians. I just thought they were some wild tribes from Central Asia, maybe Turkish. And um, so um, these these uh, old families, the, the Farnese family, um, like so many others, came out of Central Asia into the Middle East and then into the Mediterranean region. And Romania is named for the Romans, and the Romans uh, were Iranians. The Roman soldiers, they, they went and recruited them in Romania, so they named Romania for, for the Roman soldiers. And um, the, uh, the religious leaders and the, the, um, the kings of, of the... Um, Roman Empire, I guess they were called emperors, uh, yeah, emperors, and uh, they were, uh, they were Iranians, and I just got a, a mosaic from Constantinople of King Constantine to put in a, a, a film, uh, an interview that I did, and there he is, looking at you with all this Central Asian, uh, clothing on and beads of pearls hanging down all around his face and the Scythian war helmet on his head and um, his whole 
uh, attire, his tunic is all Iranian, Central Asian. The uh, sapphires, rubies, emeralds that he's uh, adorned with are all Central Asian. Those are Persian, you know, and Indian. The Indians are Iranian. And um, he's sitting there looking at you um, with one eyebrow. It's one eyebrow that, you know, goes over the goes over both of the eyes, but it joins down in the middle of the nose. Those are very characteristic Persian eyebrows. And then they have a certain shape to their face and their head. And I went, oh my God, King Constantine was Iranian. He was a Persian. And um, and then I looked at some of the, the queens, and they were too, the empresses. And, oh, those people are there are Central Asian. A lot of the popes were are Iranians. They were Iranians, bloodline Iranians. And and so uh, Alessandro Farnese became Pope Paul III. And he took uh, church properties from the Vatican and those three titles, those three ducal titles, and he gave them to his sons. And he was sort of chastised later for stealing <laughs> church property for his family. But... Um, but other popes did it too, not all of them, but some of them did. And uh, so all these world leaders, and, and who else was Iranian? Ataturk. Uh, and these bloodlines go through the mother, not through the father. Uh, uh, Ataturk, Tito, had his mother had Iranian blood. Uh, Stalin was from um, Gilan uh, province in the south western corner of the Caspian region and he's from an ancient Iranian family through his mother and um, he was the, um, the the president of Russia or the dictator of Russia uh, let's see, commissar anyway uh, lots of these people uh, Leon Panetta uh, Nancy Pelosi um, Christian Lagarde these all look like Iranians. I know Leon Panetta is Uzbek. I can tell by his nose, and I had Iranians confirm it too, Persians confirm it. But um, they're all over the place, and um, they're still running the world. Right, right. So, um, so going going back to, let me just talk about the Eurasian Minerals Incorporated. Um, this is a key key part of this whole entire region. In fact, it's global. But Eurasian Minerals Incorporated is a mining company that you and I discovered when we were covering the Haiti earthquake. And on the Eurasian Minerals website, uh, after I discovered that harp that had been a harp-triggered earthquake, um, then I started investigating Eurasian Minerals and I discovered that they um, had bought the mineral rights in Haiti um, maybe three months before the earthquake. And I'm not sure how they bought them because um, the Haitian people didn't want any foreign mining interests to come into their country. And there's a very, very rich gold, copper, zinc, a silver mineral belt that goes through the Dominican Republic and then through Haiti. And uh, these are ancient island arcs that were a volcanic, um, 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 they were volcan seafloor volcanic ranges, and then they were uplifted. 
and volcanoes have hot water circulating and in in their throughout the rock structure and that enriches minerals into especially metals into mineral deposits so i discovered on the eurasian mineral site their website.com that they had uh there had been a geologist sent to the Dominican Republic uh 10 years before the Haiti earthquake and he had been uh mapping uh some of the volcanoes that had been uplifted and then he was taking the ore quality and estimating how much could be made mining just one of those volcanoes and it was a tremendous amount of money and then i looked at the um the grant money or where the grant money where did the support money come from there it was rockefellers so the eurasian uh, minerals incorporated has to have a lot of rockefeller um involvement and they're global and then i looked on their their um their home webpage at um their projects for that year that they were so proud of and they were Haiti and then across uh Europe and Turkey and and into Central Asia and a lot of them were in locations where they had had harp earthquakes or harp volcanic eruptions or flooding harp flooding things like that so they're definitely using harp uh to um remove populations where they want to mine and the way they're mapping mining now instead of sending teams of geologists out to the the jungle of the Amazon or or to Borneo where the headhunters are or whatever they um they can do it from satellites now it's 100% accurate and all they do is transmit a 30 watt signal and down into the ground and it's the Bechtel Corporation that has done a lot of it globally and that that uh frequency comes back and it has uh it's like keys on a piano you listen to it or you analyze it uh for the frequencies that come back um that are characteristic of a particular mineral or metal or oil or gas and um it's just like listening to a um a piano playing and each note is just one unique metal or one unique uh, whatever non-metal and uh so they have mapped all over the world and not only can they detect what um metal metalliferous or what other minerals are there but they can also actually scan the whole or our body in 3D in three dimensions they can map the um the ore the richness of the ore the quality of the ore so they know which part of it to bid on or they know which part to mine first or they know where the richest ore is so they mine that first or maybe it's a joint venture so everybody gets something uh that's more or less equal for everyone so that's uh that's what uh mining is has been reduced to it's um it's a sewing machine light bulb <laughs> that's the 30 watt light bulb that they are uh mapping mineral wealth all over the world with 
and Eurasian minerals is a huge, huge, huge issue, huge factor, huge stakeholder in this whole Eurasian um, new economy. And the um, uh, Australia has now been turned into a the biggest lily pad base in the world. And the Australians turned over their military bases to be shared with the U.S. military. So now the U.S. military can ship any illegal weapons, nuclear weapons, anything from the United States to their bases in Australia. And there's no oversight by the president or from Congress. Now, when they transfer nuclear weapons out of the United States to other countries or other military bases, they have an oversight by Congress, and they also have to have a sign-off by the President of the United States. Now, with these these shared bases in uh, Australia, the military doesn't need any permission at all. They just, they're sending mini nukes over there. They're testing them on the battlefields. They're sending depleted uranium. They're dropping depleted uranium bombs all over Australia. And um, the population is going down fast with diabetes, with uh, prostate and all kinds of reproductive cancer. Uh, they're depopulating Australia because uh, the new mineral wealth, in addition to Eurasia, is Antarctica and the Arctic, the poles. And uh, Russia pretty much has a lock on, uh, they have a legitimate claim on most of the mineral rights in the Arctic Circle uh, because they are geologically, structurally connected and related to the Arctic geology. Um, in uh, Antarctica, um England had the war in the Falklands to get a, the mineral rights to part of uh, Antarctica. They also have access to mineral rights through New Zealand, Tasmania, Australia, and um, and then poor Argentina battered to death by the World Banks. Well, they finally, uh, Christina Kirchner um, Fernandez finally resolved that, and so uh, Argentina will now become a member of the BRICS Bank. Now, could could you, uh, just going going back a sec, uh, you mentioned something about uh, the structural claim of Russia on the Arctic. Could, could you compare the structural claims of Canada and Russia um uh, and other countries on the Arctic and the impact of now the Northwest Passage with, with, uh, well, mm-hmm. with, with the melting of, of some of the ice caps up there. Yes. Well, um, the Arctic region is an open ocean. There is no landmass in the, in, in the Arctic region, um, mainly in the Arctic Circle. There, there might be some islands, but there's no big landmass there as there is in Antarctica. Antarctica is two continents that are welded together down the middle from a collision, and uh, there's tremendous uh, mineral wealth there. Um, in the Arctic, the water in the Pacific flows into the Arctic Ocean, um, and and it's surrounded by 
calving ice that is coming off of um, uh, very thick uh, glaciers and everything that are especially in the um, the Canadian Arctic and the and the Russian Arctic and they calve into that uh, water that's coming in from the Pacific and some of them are huge ice flows but they're basically like ice, ice cubes floating around in a in a in a in a a pot or a, a dish or something or a drink and they melt uh, slowly as they move through the um, the Arctic region, the Arctic Ocean and it takes about three and a half years for the an ice flow to go from the entrance uh, of the Pacific into the Arctic Ocean all the way to exit the Arctic Ocean and flow down into the North Atlantic and in 1898 the Russians carried out their first scientific survey in the Arctic it was a ship and um, in the 1930s about 1932 they started manning scientific research permanent stations that were manned 365 days of the year and they would fly planes up there with supplies and take people in and out if they needed to. But these ice flow stations, they're called drift stations, were um, uh, po- populated and they had lots of scientific instruments and recorded all kinds of currents and winds and and the nature of the um, Earth's magnetic field and solar winds and everything. And uh, so they had a very long history of science and experience in the Arctic. So in World War, um, after World War II, the United States began developing, I guess in the 50s maybe, um, a new weapon system called HARP. And it's a huge antenna network that is located in places all around the world, including many stations in the Antarctic and um, many in the equatorial region and many in other surprising places like Southeast Asia and Japan and um, um, all, all over the world, African countries. And that uh, HARP system was secretly developed during the Cold War by the Soviet Union and the U.S. And they developed it in the United States. They worked on it at the Livermore Nuclear Weapons Lab where I worked from 1989 to 91 and um, and then they also worked on it in, in the Soviet Union and um, we did give them printing plates so that they could uh, print their own money to develop the um, their nuclear weapons program and uh, so I'm sure we were giving them money also uh, to develop HARP but I think the U.S. would not have been able to develop harbor it would have taken much longer if the Russians had not collaborated and even today the uh, the, the Russians have the seven biggest transmitters in the world harp transmitters and um, they actually conducted harp experiments with mind control in the 70s as you very well know having investigated a suicide epidemic in, uh, I think it was Medford, Oregon. Was it Medford? Right. 
Yeah. And uh, that was in the 70s, and it turned out that the transmissions were harp transmissions, elf transmissions that were transmitted from the Soviet Union over that city, and uh, they transmitted a frequency that caused suicide, people to commit suicide, and um, and they just, I, 14 or 18 people died in one day in, in suicide, and it's not a very big town. So um, an investigation was done and confirmed that the transmissions were coming from uh, the Soviet Union, and the reason they were doing it is because it was illegal for the U.S. government to experiment on human beings. So they just had um, the Soviets do it for them. Right, right. Um, yeah. But going back to the – did I answer your question? Uh, uh, well, I – I was just w- w- wondering. Uh, I, I thought you mentioned that that Russia had more of a legal claim to the Arctic. Is that the case? Oh yes, yes. Um, because of the geologic connection relationship of the the uh, the northern extremes of the Russian continent. More of it is within the Arctic Circle, and it's um, very, very definitely connected geologically to the Arctic region that qualifies for mineral um, claims. Um, I know that Norway is also geologically uh, connected, so they will have some claim also. Uh, The Canadian Arctic um, does not have very much within the Arctic Circle, so... The Arctic claims for um, Canada are not, they're minor. And then the U.S. has uh, very little also. There's some in the, um, I'm not sure where it, I'm not sure how much the U.S. has, but it's not very much. So um, Putin said we're taking the Arctic, we're claiming the mineral rights for Russia, and um, he won't tolerate uh, anyone, you know, elbowing their way in or sneaking in or anything and grabbing it. And uh, he's had General Shoigu up in the Arctic building um, military bases and refurbishing old ones and upgrading and updating them. And then Russia's building um, a new fleet. Uh, they're doing all kinds of things. And they're doing it the right way. They're very thoughtful about it, and and um, they they just spend time uh, doing their research and then fine tuning what they what they find uh, to exactly suit their needs. They don't need all the bells and whistles on it. They need a weapon that performs and is reliable and is stable. And um, so they have the Arctic locked up um, the uh, Russia is very mineral rich they have vast uh, mineral wealth all over Russia in fact they have almost every element on the chart uh, it can be mined there so they have all the strategic metals and everything in case of a war uh, the United States is lacking some of them um, and uh, so Russia now is in partnership with China to build this new Silk Road economy. 
and the backbone of it will be this um, uh, this uh, high-speed railway that will go from the coast of China to Berlin. And uh, because much of Russia does not have roads or very good roads, uh, it's such a huge, vast country with very low population numbers in some areas. And then the climate uh, with the extremely cold winters makes it very difficult to maintain roads. So uh, this new high-speed rail is where the new economy actually will be centered along that transportation route. Um, and um, it's really exciting uh, because the railway, railway gauge of the tracks in Russia has always been different from the railway gauge of um, trains in Europe. And so Russian trains can go to the border of Europe, but um, they, they, they can't, their trains can't go into Europe because they're the wrong gauge. And vice versa, Europeans can deliver to the border of Russia, but they can't go any further. So this will unify the entire Eurasian continent. It's really, really exciting. And then uh, Putin has brought in Egypt as a partner and uh, or a member state of this new Eurasian economy. And that means that the Middle East will be involved, Central Asia, and East Asia. And I'm sure that um, Southeast Asia will also uh, benefit from it. And what I did want to say is that um, the pivot to Asia now, I realize, is nothing less than the same thing as the ISIS attack going on right now on the underbelly of Russia. And that would be from Azerbaijan on the um, Caspian Sea all the way to um, uh, Tajikistan. And the, um, the colored revolutions, they tried those already. So now what they're doing is they're training students from Southeast Asia, especially they're recruiting them for University of California campuses and they're training them to be CIA agents when they go back to their own countries. So they will infiltrate and take over the governments, and then they will be artificial intelligence controlled, and um, they will be the next attack on the belly of Russia, unless Putin cleans that up too. Now, what so, I find really interesting about this, not, well, I mean, hi historically on, on two grounds. The first ground is that this is really, if you go back to it, it's uh, uh, back to the post-World War II strategy, the famous, quote, containment policy. It looks like just, they're just, the, the U.S. and the West it's just warming over its quote containment policy. That's what it is. They're just they're just hostage nations. Uh, that's what the U.S. does. They take hostages. They don't have relationships with them, like an alcoholic. An alcoholic doesn't have relationships with people. They just take hostages, and that's just what the U.S. is like—a completely out of control drunk. 
taking hostages wherever they want without any consciousness or awareness or or any compassion or or anything for what they're doing and who they're destroying and what they're destroying. It's it, completely out of control, but it's AI, artificial intelligence. It, and um, I'm seeing it happening right here, right now in Berkeley. And these people are mediocre people who are involved in bringing this evil, uh, satanic technology and practices to uh, the citizens around them. And it's so absolutely bizarre, you can't believe that it's real. And you're going, who are all these people? They They could hardly get a job last year or five years ago or ten years ago. God, now they're driving around in Tesla cars and... Um, they've got it, hidden antennas all over their cars and they're zapping anybody they want to and they're killing people and they're just destroying everywhere. It's mayhem and chaos. And that's what they're good for. Um, it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. R- right. So, so that if we look at the strategy that the U.S. and the West is carrying out, it's the exact same strategy that Truman adopted after World War II, which he, 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 he called, quote, containment. And that is to go through the underbelly of Russia all the way around Russia and, and right. to contain, quote, contain Russia everywhere that they could. And now it looks like they're trying to do the same thing rather than joining in the prosperity of a cooperative economy like that visionary plan for a highway from St. Petersburg or Moscow to New York over the land bridge, which would bring Canada and the U.S. into the Silk Road, they're, uh, they're uh, 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 continuing this policy of containment and it seems to me that it goes back to the international bankers that are behind this. It does, absolutely. And it is containment. And a lot of this, uh, uh, things that are happening now, you can read uh, in the RAND Corporation report. And uh, we have it posted on, on our website, lorenmaray.info. Just, just go on that. Um, just go on that website, lorenmaray.info, and in the index, look for the RAND report. And you'll see um, even the refugee crisis that, that is happening in Europe, that was all a RAND concept they proposed uh, years ago. So all these crazy things that are happening were actually really planned a long time ago. And 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 actually, this, if you look at it historically, this seems to go back. In fact, you and I, you, you've mentioned it a number of times and we were talking about it prior to the program. This goes back to the 1860s. Yeah. Uh, uh, when, uh, and, and the, and the 1880s, <coughs> excuse me, when Russia was actually on the path to becoming, uh, quote, a towering prosperous, ec- ec- economic nation which was not welcome in London and so 
Tsar Alexander II, who had not only freed the serfs uh, in 1861, but unlike Abraham Lincoln, where he just freed slaves, um, Tsar Alexander freed the serfs with land uh, and uh, was assassinated uh, by the international bankers in in 1881. So this, so what we're seeing is something that has been going on for 150 years. At least. Yeah. Where, where, uh, Russia is really, in a way, Russia and China are the hope of the world and, uh, they are, and it's, it's, uh, this, this, uh, uh, this pathological bloodline out of London that is, that controls money that is, is, uh, constantly impoverishing the human race because, I mean, I am all for, and I know that the American people would be all for a, a highway that goes from Moscow to New York through Canada. Uh, so that oh, yeah. the U.S. can become part of the of the Silk Road of the Silk Road economy. Yes, it will, and it's going to be um, it's going to create wealth through peaceful trading, rather than stealing wealth through uh, destroying things. And and even an Austrian um, uh, economist named von Mises said uh, you never create wealth by destroying things. Exactly. I, and I, so I, this is exactly what Mahathir told me when we, you and I were in Malaysia at the war crimes tribunals. And he said, um, he said, when I was the, um, the prime minister of Malaysia, I never allowed an American warship to come into our ports in 22 years. He said, we used to have peaceful trading for thousands of years in Southeast Asia and Asia and with the Middle East. And he said, we didn't have wars. Sometimes there were little fights uh, here and there, but not like now. And he said, that's why I never allowed an, an American warship into our ports. He said, first the Portuguese came. It took us 200 years to get rid of them. And then... The uh, the Dutch came. This is just Southeast Asia. Took us 200 years to get rid of them. And then the British warships came, and it took us 200 years to get rid of them. And he said, we don't want Americans here. Right, right. And, and look what's happening now. The United States has infiltrated Malaysia, and uh, they're setting it up to be cannibalized. And, and so, as you just mentioned, the pivot to Asia is actually a continuation of the containment policy that's 150 yes. year, years old, and it's yes. basically uh, the international bankers trying to contain uh, the uh, the contain prosperity from reaching the world's people. They want control of it, and they want to steal it all. And, and 85% now, of the world owns nothing, Alfred, 
after 80,000 years on this planet with everybody working hard, how come 85% of the world owns nothing? It's because of these bloodline criminal families with similar interests and satanic practices uh, and perverted religions. They're the ones that are creating this nightmare. Right. And we were talking about, uh, uh, in preparation for this um, program, I'm very glad that you mentioned AI, artificial intelligence, because it seems with the rapid collapse of the U.S. strategy abroad, that that is through through the bombing campaign in Syria and the collapse of 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 ISIS and what we can call quote the war on terror. It seems to me that that in these past three weeks, the quote war on terror has collapsed. In other words, this is the 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 last gasp of nine eleven. The war on terror mm-hmm. went from the nine eleven false flag operation to Putin's bombing of Syria, which ended it basically as a strategy. And that now the U.S. government is having to fall back and what it's suppressing is its own people. And it's its... And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, sorry. And, and it's and it's the U.S. people that are the new the new enemy because the U.S. people are going to wake up now and say, wait a minute, we just spent trillions on the war on terror and it was all a fraud and, and, uh, 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 we're broke. And so now the U.S. is being invaded. So that was the significance of Jane Helm where for the first time an artificial intelligence came out. And as you said there in Berkeley, You've been invaded by smart meters, cell phones, flat array antennas, and by uh, 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 AI and trained humans who have become robotoids uh, such that you are now uh, the target of the U.S. government. Yes. A- anyone who opposes the U.S. government who's a... Um, um, an activist who, especially people who are protecting the environment, um, natural herbs for health and, and good health and, and, um, um, as to be used as pharmaceuticals for diseases. Those are the enemy now. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, they're, they're being very, very targeted. It's nothing compared to what's going to happen in the next 10 years. They've changed our food. They've poisoned it. There's poison in all of the meats now. We have to. You, it's very hard to find a source for clean meat. Um, don't shop at Costco. Um, and this is all without our consent or anything. Um, they've rewired all the street lamps. They have flat and array antennas. Those tele, those uh, street lamps can talk to you. The cops can see everything you're doing. Um, they can measure your your blood gases. Uh, they know everything about you. They could do mind reading from those street lamps. 
And uh, then the cars, the, the secret gangstalker cars, have flat array antennas hidden in the door panels and around the windows. And um, they drive around in gangs and just uh, will go by a house and just hit it like a machine gun, one car after another, with very strong EMF frequencies that cripple you, that um, that are very painful, uh, that cause changes in your body that, that are very uncomfortable. Uh, they're doing very crazy things. And uh, these are part of the cop toys that were turned over to American law enforcement when Janet Reno was um, um, U.S. Attorney General and Edward Teller was with her at the meeting, secret meeting, classified meeting at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And they met for five days. There were 500 scientists, 5,000 businessmen. Um, their law enforcement was there. The military was there. And these uh, scientists demonstrated all of these new cop toys. Now, most of them were um, used by the military in foreign countries. They were testing them before they used them domestically. And um, those were all turned over to law enforcement at that meeting. And um, that was in 1993. And I read about it in the Wall Street Journal because those 5,000 businessmen were there to get contracts to build all these cop toys. And now, this is horrible. I just read yesterday, and this is mid-October of 2015, that the New York City has turned over x-ray machines to the cops. What do cops need x-ray machines for? The last time they got radar guns to check people's speed, they ended up with testicular cancer from putting the guns down between their legs when they weren't using them. So, um, uh, uh, they, this is a this is a part of the global genocide, but they're really escalating it in the U.S. And my friend Bob Nichols sends us a weekly report and other people too on the EPA radiation levels they're reporting in cities all over the United States. And uh, about four weeks ago, uh, uh, he produced one that was 25 cities that had uh, radiation rate, um, levels reported for that week over 1,000 counts per minute. Now, the normal background, what it should be, is 7 to 10 or 12 counts per minute. Um, this is hundreds of times more. And then, the week after that, it went up to uh, 30 or 32 cities, and now we just got one yesterday, and it was 45 cities in the United States have radiation levels over 1,000 counts per minute. And now, yesterday I went outside shopping, and there were huge, huge, dirty gray clouds billowing in over the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. We're right on the Pacific Ocean. And they're all blowing east into the main interior of the United States and eventually the East Coast. And so these horrible, nasty chemicals that are 
that are causing all kinds of diseases. I got staph all over my hairline from not wearing a hat out in the rain. And then it was on my feet, on my shoes a month later. So um, they're putting pathogens, radiation, and chemicals in the chemtrails. These are combining with the radioactive levels that are already high in different regions and cities. And they're increasing the kill rate. They're killing off Americans. This is a genocide against the United States, against the American people. And it's nothing less than that. What happened in the Ukraine and what's what happened to the Eastern Orthodox Christians and what is happening in Syria is happening here. Millions of people are dying. A hundred over a hundred thousand people had died by Christmas right after Fukushima. Oh, I'm seeing deformed babies all over the place now. Um and they started I started noticing them in Christmas at Christmas of twenty eleven, which is about eight eight or nine months after um Fukushima happened. So uh this is definitely a genocide of America and and many other regions and places. Um, and what does disturb me is the big push to promote and build new per, um, nuclear power plants, and those are simply and purely genocidal weapons. It's just a slow nuclear war against the people. And it's um, Russia, of all, all countries, promoting them. They do have a lot of uranium deposits, but perhaps they have a, a different kind of um nuclear power what we want is fusion that doesn't have the radioactive byproducts uh i don't think these are fusion but but they could be and um so why um and as soon as i hear nuclear power this politician or this person or that person as soon as i know they're backing nuclear power i know they're they're jesuit trained or they have jesuit ties so um this is uh this is tremendous danger the ai and these uh, electronics are tremendous danger uh to the um the global community but especially to the united states and north america and um the um it's just very 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 uh it makes me really heart sick and Sometimes I just don't want to watch another news story or read another article about certain topics. Uh, the Ukraine just disturbed me tremendously because we saw so much of the battlefield scenes from the, the soldiers who wore the, the cams on their helmets. And the, um, the Cossacks made sure that uh, there was a lot of what was really happening videotaped and then presented to the public because it was a slaughter. And um, a slaughter of the civilians, not the not the Cossacks. They they know how to fight and be safe. But um, we're in very very dangerous times for the Western countries as the Western economy uh, collapses because they are going to roll us up and genocide us and um, and and wipe the whole landscape clean and then start with a new civilization they'll be they're 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 um forced relocation of many cultures and people and and religious groups 
is happening all over the world now. And none of this is new. Uh, the forced relocation, there's stories about it in the Bible. It's thousands of years old. Um, the, um, uh, the really interesting thing is that there, uh, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank have come up with this new scam, uh, trading debt for nature. And so they've worked out this program. It's a fraud uh, where uh, countries that have um, that are indebted to them uh, will be able to trade their nature, their commons, their their mineral resources, and their timber and everything to pay off the debt. And that's just getting everything for nothing for the bankers because the the the. The money they're loaning is just paper money that doesn't have any value. It's just paper. It doesn't rep. It just represents labor, basically. Um, and um, and yet now the IMF will take all of the black soil. All of they will take every square inch of the Ukraine. It's a tremendous agricultural uh, environment. And it was feeding Europe and Russia as well as the Ukraine. That's how rich the soil is. And now, because of the debt that has been incurred by the crooks the U.S. put into the junta to run the Ukraine, the Ukraine is so indebted to the IMF in just one year that they will have to trade all of their country, the physical country, for... um to pay off the debt that they owe to the International Monetary Fund. And this is how they're stealing, by giving countries uh, paper money that has no value and uh, forcing them into uh, financial collapse so that they can um, gain all of uh, what has value, which is nature, the natural uh, environment. And this, this is nothing new. Uh, 90 years after the Norman invasion of England uh, by Norman the Conqueror, King John II of England was so indebted to the Vatican Bank, he borrowed, he and previous kings had borrowed so much money that he uh, finally agreed with Pope Innocent to uh, turn over the mineral rights to Great Britain in exchange for... Um, forgiveness of that debt. And so this debt for nature, nature for debt uh, scam has been around for a long time. And that was the um, the treaty of, I've forgotten what the treaty was, in 1213. 12, 12, and then uh, three years later, because there was resentment about how King John ruled uh, very um uh, it was very unpopular how he ruled, so he was forced to uh, sign the Magna Carta, which gave the, the nobles and the landowners and even the serfs rights. Right. Oh, it, was the tre- it was the Treaty of 1213 is what it was. Exactly. Yeah. And so, um, so this trading nature for debt, Obama traded all of the work the water in Lake Superior to China about two years ago to uh, forgive some of the debt or the interest on the debt. And uh, that's just part of the debt. That's not even all of it. 
and uh, and then Brazil just had an economic collapse, and um, and so they were forced to just recently go to the IMF, and they've turned over one third of the Amazon basin forest, the jungle, to China. They've traded it uh, for uh, bailing them out. Now. Um, in the Ukraine, it's going to be all of the Ukraine, all that black soil that is 35% of the black soil in the world is in that one location. And when you look at them farming it, oh my God, uh, I think I could almost eat it with a spoon. It looks so good. <laughs> uh, but it's very, very rich soil. And so we are seeing a shift now to a new economy it is going to be global. It will be over the land bridge into the United States, and they'll they'll um, they they'll they'll put it all over the world. And let's hope it's more equitable than what we've had. Um, I I can't imagine um, that. I I think it's just going to everything is going to change. And then we have the problem because of the Fuku Fukushima. Um, because of the Fukushima radiation, that the entire infrastructure of the planet is now in uh, the process of completely disintegrating. And so the planes are, um, first pieces were flying off uh, three years ago, then two years ago wings started falling off, and now the tails are falling off of planes, uh, among other, all kinds of other problems like the... Um, the safety ramps or those inflatable ramps that, that they help people down if the plane has problems and they can't walk off the plane. They slide down those inflatable ramps. Well, those are popping open in the cabin in mid-flight. Um, there are all kinds of hydraulics problems. There are problems with lithium batteries exploding. Um, they're just, uh, I know the whole wall panel um, in one plane, just all the rivets started popping out of the uh, where it was attached to the plane shell or the skin of the the plane, and and the whole wall was falling down on the on the the whole panel on the on the um, um, pa- passengers. So uh, there are many things that are very very frightening that are happening, but there are many changes that are. Uh, very hopeful and and very wonderful if they work and some of them will work. Um, it's it's uh, the Chinese kanji uh, symbol for um, disaster. It's also the symbol for opportunity. And so right. people who are smart and work hard and um, um, Think about what they're doing and plan what they're doing and watch Putin. Uh, watch how he thinks and how he plans and how he executes things. And uh, it's the time to watch people and watch the successful people and think about your own skills and your own interests and find uh, new opportunities for yourself. They can be much, much more wonderful and much more fulfilling in, in lots of ways than the way we've lived. We've even been hostages. So um, it's um, it's a time for growth and opportunity and um, exchange of information and supporting each other and forming community. 
our our communities are being destroyed. We need to form community, build community, and help each other. Right, right. We're 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 coming to the end of this segment, um, and and we started out with the concepts of uh, Putin in Syria restoring sovereignty of nations through international law and shifting the balance of world power to peaceful economies, which is a positive direction. Do you feel that positive now? Oh, yes, I do. I feel very positive. And even in the process of doing this interview, um, I'm processing all this information that I took in and insights I have and people I know and things I observe. And, and so this, this interview was an opportunity to process all of that and link things in a discussion with you that um, uh, our listeners will also find value in and and we'll get comments from them and they sometimes they say just really mind-blowing things but it's um, another piece of the puzzle and as soon as we all work together as long as we work together and we share information and we stay in a positive light more people more positive people will be attracted just as it's happening to Putin in the Middle East he's doing the right thing for the right reason at the right time in the right spirit and so other people who want to escape that I'll call it the global hostage crisis of the U.S. Um, they're going, oh, maybe he is going to work out. I think um, maybe he can help us get out of this. And so as more and more people defect from U.S. hegemony, um, there's going to be a lot more exchange of different ideas and cultures and, and rebuilding. And the sovereignty of nations is one of the most important things that Putin is promoting. And many people don't know it, but he has a law degree, international law. And so I think uh, that was a very good background for him to have. And uh, he certainly followed through on it. He really has. I've watched everything he's done. And he's been very squeaky clean. Right, right. One final qu- question, because... Um uh the US unlike other countries has uh you know endless wars and endless political campaigns right so yes. most countries have political campaigns or for elections that last between 60 and 30 days the US has one that lasts 18 months so we have the 2016 elections and uh uh with the exception of one or two candidates, Putin seems like the villain again. Uh, and um, so far, no real solutions have come up, judging in the 2016 elections. How, how can a person, how can a, 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 an individual who's inside the U.S. orbit who sees what is happening with the collapse of the U.S. power and with the war of the of the U.S. 
some people call it the United States Corporation against the American people. Mm-hmm. What collective mm-hmm. solutions do we have collectively? What 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 can we do? You usually people say, "Well, you can vote them out of office." Yeah, well, they're they're all part of it. So well, no, you just reelect the Rockefellers with every election. Yeah, yeah, sure. On both sides. So. So what are some of the collective solutions that citizens inside the United States orbit, which is, which, you know, has, has, is, is, produces nothing but war, disease, crime, and poverty. That seems to be its sole product. Mm -hmm. What can citizens collectively do to bring down that artificial intelligence monster. Well, um, this is part of building community. And um, during the time that I've been working on radiation issues and depleted uranium, um, all the way from uh, parliaments and the U.S. government, Congress, down to um, individuals. And what I've seen uh, that really impressed me is that uh, we must act locally. We must act locally. We have to have control of our own local environment. Every city should own their energy and water company. And when they had the big Entron ripoff, electricity overrates uh, ripoff in California, there were two cities in California that didn't have to raise their energy rates because they owned the electric companies. And Sacramento is the only city, the only uh, um, uh, citizens group that that turned off their. Oh, it was Enron. Uh, that that uh, Sacramento is the only place where uh, they turned off a nuclear power plant voluntarily. And um, this is because the citizens owned the nuclear power plant, Rancho Seco, and when they got they started realizing the huge rise in infant mortality, obesity, diabetes, cancer. Um, they realized that nuclear power plant, and they funded studies on it so that they had scientific studies done by the Livermore Nuclear Weapons Lab, among others, proving um, that these were releasing huge amounts of radioactive emissions. And... Um, and so they just said, they voted, the citizens just voted to shut down Rancho Seco. And boom, it was shut down, just one vote. But uh, trying to shut down a nuclear power plant in the U.S., it takes years and years and years and years, and it's demonstrations and uh, by citizens and uh, huge political fights and no support and no money to fund the opposition or the, uh, the opponents. And uh, so... Um, so uh, acting locally is very important. Who you elect for the city council is very important. Um, funding, uh, public funding of elections is very important. As long as you're taking money from that deep pocket, uh, you're going to get what they pay for, not what you want. So um, uh, it's just, I mean, they've tried to do of election reform. Ralph Nader, and there was a, a whole decade of it. 
And it's so difficult to overcome what basically are the oligarchs. We have the same thing that Russia has. They're oligarchs. They're criminals. And they want more than anybody else. And they want to steal it. And they're, and they're psychopaths. They want to kill people, too. Genocide. They want, oh, well, uh, I want to mine there or I want to develop there. So uh, let's just depopulate this population. Well, what was very interesting is that I had the, the opportunity to have a conversation once with a member of Putin's strategic team. And, ah. and, and he said that, uh, one of the prime strategies when Putin first came in was a strategy on getting rid of the oligarchs in Russia. And, yes. uh, and so that, that's been one of the ways that, that, that he has really been able to be successful. And, uh, yes. uh, uh, in the U.S., statistics have come out that uh 40% of uh billionaires in the US are uh Zionist Jews. So are uh, they they're actually not. They're actually well actually the oligarchs in Russia are Iranian, ancient Iranian bloodlines. And I just and and then the Uzbek ancient Iranians um took the Tajik Iranian tribes and they converted them to a satanic form of Judaism, which followed the Kabbalah and the Talmud, which are uh, magic books from ancient Mesopotamian magic cults. Right. And and um, these Tajiks, they also put into breeding programs where they inbred them in ghettos and pogroms, uh, very inbred, and they made them mentally unstable but easy to control and rather fanatical. And they um, spread them all over the world. And the Tajiks uh, are, they call themselves Jews, but look at them. They they have very Oriental uh, looks to them. They're very Central Asian looking. Look at uh, Kate Middleton's mother. Kate Middleton is married to Prince William of England, uh, Princess Diana's son. And her mother looks Central Asian. She's a Tajiki. And um, and so when you start understanding where these people really came from, the way I discovered the Russian oligarchs uh, were actually Iranians, is I lived in Iran, and I married a Persian prince, and his father, his grandfather, had been with the last Gajar Shah when he was assassinated. The last Gajar Shah was assassinated, and the Shah of Iran's father, Pahlavi, who's one of these ancient ruling bloodlines, um, suddenly became, he was a colonel in the army, and he became the head of Iran. And um, in Iranian tradition, the Shah, or the leader, um, is must never have blood spilled when he's assassinated. You can never spill the royal blood. The tradition was to uh, strangle him with a silk cord. And so when um, I, one of the, uh, the, the Russian oligarchs who fled when Putin uh, took back all the natural resources, he went, Berezhovsky is his name, I think, he went to London and he was involved with Litvinev, 
that double triple spy who was poisoned with polonium and died. And um, Litvinov worked for for Berezovsky. So Berezovsky had this big mansion in London. And um, about three or four years after Litvinov died, uh, Berezovsky was found dead in the bathroom on the floor of his estate. And he had a silk scarf lying on the bathroom floor next to him. And I knew immediately that was symbolic and that Berezovsky was some high-level or royal uh, Uzbek uh, ancient uh, Iranian bloodline. So then I started looking, and yep, Medvedev, the prime minister of Russia, has very black hair and very white skin, and he is Iranian bloodline. And there's lots and lots and lots of Iranian blood in Russia. There's been a um, in fact, um, the, the Iranians have always ruled Russia. So, look at the Tsars. A lot of them had very black hair and very white skin, and they looked very Russian. I mean, very Eras- er, Persian, Iranian. Right. Thank you. How, how can uh, people get um, access your your work and your interviews and your essays well, uh, we have a website, info, and my name is spelled L-E-U-R-E-N-M, as in Mary, O-R-E-T, at, uh, um, I'm sorry, lorenmarie.info. And on that, um, there are many articles that I have written. There are many, many um, videos that of interviews that especially you and I have done. And um, we've been doing interviews since like 2001 or 2002, and we started with um, HARP. So uh, we've had a long history, and those are all archived. Uh, we also send out um, a news released by email uh, when we have um, a new piece of news that uh, is related to our work and and um, like we'll send out the radiation report once a week that that Bob Nichols has been doing and um, uh, there's all kinds of information there uh, where to get uh, how to choose a good water filter and where to get it to keep uh, the uh, radiation out of the drinking water, um, how to prepare food, uh, what foods to avoid to uh, mitigate the effects of radiation, how radiation affects your health, um, and uh, then all kinds of, uh, we did a lot of coverage on the Ukraine war, and Putin isn't finished. He's going back and he's got to clean that up too. And um, um, so there's all kinds of information, just very, very good information with lots of references. Like I wrote a lot about uh, Fukushima. Some of the documents had a 100 references so that people, if they want to know more, they can actually go and research. So the, the, the website is for young people. It's for um, um people who are interested in knowing more about the science, but it's um, made transparent so people can 
be empowered and understand how the science works. And uh, it's fun to read it because I put ancient history in and I weave all kinds of things in to make it interesting. But it's really presenting a situation with all the parts and the history and the background and uh, where is this going and who else is affected and um, who's behind it and all, all I consider all these things. And uh, so it's been a tremendous adventure for me. My goodness, I've gotten so much out of doing it. But um, that's all on the website and it's just... Um, it's just an adventure. There's scientific papers there too. There, are, uh, diagrams and maps and that I've just been collecting for years. So, um, and I've worked with a Manhattan Project scientist, Marion Folk, who taught me all of this. It took him 10 years in his home. And, um, then I worked with Dr. Ernest Sternglass and we collected baby teeth, uh, all over the United States. And I also did, uh, baby teeth uh, collection in Japan and we measured the radiation in them to determine that the radiation levels in, in baby's teeth post-1963 when t- nuclear test ban uh, uh, t- the nuclear test ban treaty ended atmospheric bomb testing and we discovered that the radiation levels are higher in children's baby teeth than during bomb testing and it's because the nuclear power plants are on the ground. They're releasing exactly the same radionuclides that the bombs do, but it's much more concentrated. It gets drifts into people's houses, and uh, it bioconcentrates, and that, so the radiation exposure is much higher. And now, since Fukushima happened, uh, there's a lot of information about Fukushima on the site, how it travels around the world, why non- nanoparticles are dangerous, and um, um, and then we uh, do updates on Fukushima when we can get information, but it's pretty much censored now, and people in Japan just don't even talk about it as they die slowly. So uh, there's a lot of information on that website, and it's really fun to um, to look at. It's beautiful, too. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. Well, we, we want to thank you for all the time and work that you put in to, uh, bring, uh, today's program to the air and for taking your time out to be with us again. And we look forward to your joining again, to, to your joining us again in the future as events develop. Thank you, Alfred, very much. Certainly. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.